Hi, everyone. Anne Holly here. Before we get started on today's episode, I want to let listeners know about StoryGrid Live, a gathering of writers serious about the craft of story, happening September 13th and 14th, 2019, in Nashville, Tennessee. StoryGrid has grown into a movement followed by tens of thousands of writers from all over the globe who are serious about their craft. This weekend event will be full of information, inspiration, and expertise, along with some food, fun, and nerdery with your fellow StoryGridders. StoryGrid Live 2019 is the place to be for writers looking to deepen and grow their expertise in the craft of storytelling. It's time to step out of your routine to spend two days alongside other writers and storytellers like you. This is a chance to not only learn, but to connect with other amazing writers. Sean Coyne and Tim Grawl will be presenting, along with special guest Stephen Pressfield. All the roundtablers will be there, too, and we hope to see you. Find out more at storygrid.com slash live. That's storygrid.com slash live. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years experience. My name is Leslie Watts and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are my four fellow roundtablers, Jari Bolander, Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, and Kim Kessler. Each week, one of us pitches a film as an example of a significant story principle. The rest of us explore different aspects of the story so we can all understand it better. This week, Valerie pitched The Girl on the Train for the next installment of her in-depth study of the psychological thriller. This 2016 film was directed by Tate Taylor from a screenplay by Aaron Cressida Wilson based on the novel by Paula Hawkins. And just a kind reminder that this is an adult conversation and you may hear some adult words. So Valerie, start us off with the genre and a summary of the beginning hook, middle build and ending payoff, please. Absolutely. So the global genre is psychological thriller. And the secondary genre is internal and it's worldview revelation. So in the beginning hook, when Megan Hipwell goes missing, Rachel Watson must decide whether she should try to help the investigation by telling authorities that she saw Megan with another man or stay silent and possibly put Megan in further jeopardy and or let a crime go unsolved. She decides to tell the police, but is discredited and learns that she's a possible suspect. In the middle build, when Rachel insinuates herself into the investigation concerning Megan's disappearance, she becomes more unsure of her own state of mind. However, when Martha tells Rachel that she didn't do the violent, abusive things Tom told her she'd done, her memories begin to reappear. She remembers the truth about their marriage and about Megan's disappearance. She must then decide whether to go to the police, who have completely discredited her, leave the situation alone and let Tom get away with murder or go to Anna and try to save her and the baby. She goes to save Anna and the baby. In the ending payoff, when Tom comes home to find Rachel with Anna, Rachel must decide whether to confront Tom 
endangering Anna and the baby, or leave without him knowing that she's learned the truth. She decides to confront him, becomes trapped in the house, and must fight for her life. In a desperate attempt to escape, she stabs Tom in the throat, which is really gruesome, by the way, but it is Anna who delivers the final blow and kills him. Both Anna and Rachel are cleared of charges, and Rachel is finally able to go on with her life. Okay, thanks, Valerie. You've gone on this dark journey into the girl on the train. What have you discovered? It is a dark journey. And for me, psychological thrillers are probably the scariest of the genres. So I'm watching these films in daylight. (laughs) Okay, so as Leslie just said, this week, I'm continuing my study of psychological thrillers. And I'm often asked by writers and clients why we need to identify a masterwork and study multiple examples of stories in the same genre that we're writing in. My goal this season is to answer those questions by showing you how I study a genre and by giving you a glimpse at the kinds of things we can learn by doing deliberate study. The Girl on the Train is a thriller and has all the elements you'd expect a thriller to have. I'm not going to go into those details of the editor's six core questions here because that's not what I'm focused on. We know those things are in place. What I want to do is drill down to the aspects of the subgenre. When we studied Primal Fear, I mentioned that when Sean named the subgenre, he was thinking about the villain and whether a medical diagnosis would show him to be sane or insane. At the time, Kim asked a fantastic question, and I gave a really high-level answer because, honestly, it's a huge topic, and I wanted to use this episode to discuss it a bit more. Kim asked, in a psychological thriller, whose sanity are we questioning? Is it the protagonist, the villain, or the victim. When I was trying to determine the genre for the story I'm writing in, it took me forever to figure out if I was writing a thrilling horror or a horrifying thriller. You've heard me say that before. Once I settled on thriller, then I had to choose a subgenre and I really started to overthink everything and I completely confused myself. My story is kind of like the girl on the train in that it's the protagonist who is questioning her own sanity. And I didn't know if that made it a psychological thriller, because it's quite different from the primal fear example, or a woman in jeopardy thriller, because it's also different than the sleeping with the enemy example. I looked at a whole bunch of stories, and the more I looked, the more confused I got. I suspected it was a psychological thriller, but like Kim, I wondered if the question of sanity was for the villain only. Finally, I had to send out an SOS to Sean, who very generously helped me out. So here's a clip of the conversation that we had. People respond to fictional stories as a cure for a contemporary malady. So what is it about contemporary society that makes women look toward a fictional story about a protagonist that is either not believed or is unsure herself of what she really thinks, or what is really true. You could call anything psychologically suspenseful that has any kind of internal genre attached to it. So usually these internal genres are based upon either revelation, punitive plot, or disillusionment. So the protagonist is in search of answers to a psychological dilemma, which is, I don't know if I'm crazy or not. So the global plot is thriller. The internal genre is usually revelation or disillusionment or punitive. So if the woman actually commits the murder, she discovers that she's the murderer. 
it's a riff on a woman's spiraling out of being able to maintain homeostasis in a very, very unreliable world. And I think it psychologically goes back to this possible conundrum for women today, which is, are you going to be a mom or are you going to be a professional or are you going to try and be both? And if you're both, you're never going to feel good at either one of them. Welcome to my world. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Meanwhile, you've got these predatory figures in the world who gaslight and manipulate you into sleeping with them or doing something they're taking something from you while you're you know so it's like Mm -hmm. this vortex of trying to parse reality in a way that makes sense so the gradients of value which we always get back to are at play here and the value at stake is sanity so is it psychological sure yeah Psychological is a word that means internal processing. So when you hear psychological, you say to yourself, well, they're trying to define the internal genre at stake. And the revelations from the internal genre in these novels are usually used as devices in the third act to turn the global story. And the ones today are more about regulating one's sanity in an impossible universe of too much information and you can't be reliable. No one is reliable, not even yourself. So the thriller evolved from third-party psychopath who has nothing to do with you to, oh my gosh, the psychopath is your husband. He's Mm -hmm. a member of your family. He's close to you. And now it's be careful because you could be the psychopath. Okay. So Sean is giving us some pretty important information here. The reason I was getting so confused is that I've stumbled upon a genre that is in the process of a major shift. (laughs) Leave it to me. (laughs) It used to be that the villain was a stranger. Then it was someone close to us. Now we're wondering if it's us. Stories reflect changes in society. So what's going on in society today to cause the shift? Well, it's pretty simple. We, by we, I mean women, are being pulled in too many directions and we're fighting too many uphill battles. We are stretched to our limits and we feel like we're going to snap. I just wanted to say that I was fascinated by what Sean had to say about the struggles of women to balance our roles and our identity in the face of so much you know, modern pressures and adversity. It really gave me a whole new appreciation for the thriller genre and for Sean just for pointing it out and saying so. Yeah, me too. It really was an aha moment for me. Okay, back to The Girl on the Train. Paula Hawkins, the author, describes it as a woman's story. She set out to write a story about the issues women face today, and really isn't that exactly what Sean was just talking about. While thrillers generally don't require an internal genre, psychological thrillers do, because the value at stake is sanity. The point of the whole story is to discover the internal shift of the character. I hypothesized in an earlier episode that psychological thrillers would often be paired with worldview revelation stories. And Sean backed me up on this one. Woohoo! <laughs> but he added an important bit of information that I hadn't yet figured out. This subgenre is also often paired with disillusionment and punitive internal genres. 
I haven't found examples of those yet, but now I'm on the lookout for them. Before I move on, I just want to make a quick side note here. The Girl on the Train is billed as Hawkins' debut novel, but that's actually not true. She'd written and published four novels before this under a pseudonym, and she'd spent 15 years or so as a journalist. The reason I want to mention this is because we can often beat ourselves up if our first attempt at a novel isn't on par with the number one bestsellers. But remember, those authors had an apprenticeship, and it's okay for us to have one too. All right, I'll get off my soapbox now. Back to the girl on the train. There are definitely similarities here with Primal Fear, and here's a couple of them. First of all, the book is better than the movie. There's my bias for books showing through again, but I actually have some reasons for this. The fact that I think the books are better than the movies is starting to form a new idea in my mind. I'm putting forward a new hypothesis, and it's this. Psychological thrillers lend themselves more to the novel than to the screen, and certainly to a two-hour format, because its very nature is the state of the character's mind. Robert McKee said that screenwriting is the art of making the mental physical, and I agree with that. That's a tricky thing to do, especially when it's the protagonist's sanity that we're questioning. Filmmakers really do need things like voiceover to help viewers understand what's happening. Novelists, on the other hand, can pop right into the characters' minds. Okay, the second similarity is that we have shifting hero, victim, and villain roles. Megan is clearly a victim, but she's also a force of antagonism for her therapist. Anna and Rachel are all three. Tom is arguably all three. Certainly he is the villain. He appears to be a hero. He also appears to be a victim of Rachel's harassment. And Scott is definitely also all three. Next, we have shapeshifters. Like Primal Fear, because there is this shifting hero, victim, villain thing happening, the girl on the train includes shapeshifting characters. No one is quite who they seem, or at least who Rachel believes them to be, including herself, by the way. Next, both of these stories lean more toward crime than action and horror. And again, thriller is a combination of all three, but in these cases, the crime story is what's being highlighted. And the last one is, in my opinion, the most interesting. Both of these stories really use point of view to their advantage. Now, point of view is one of those things that's often overlooked by writers. We might consider it for a few minutes and decide whether we'll use first or third person, but then we kind of move on. However, knowing who tells the story is essential. Remember, one of the conventions of a thriller and something that makes it different from a horror is that the hero becomes the final victim and the villain's attack is personal. In Primal Fear, we had an unaware protagonist. Aaron needed Martin Vale to get him cleared of all the charges. Therefore, keeping Vale ignorant of Aaron's true motives was an essential part of the story. William Deal had to incorporate that. The novel is told from multiple points of view, so it keeps the reader off balance. It's kind of like that game with the coconut shells, you know, where they shift them around and you're never quite sure which coconut shell has the ball under it. Well, here in the novel, by shifting the point of view all the time, we lose track of who knows what and where the truth actually lies. The girl on the train has an unreliable narrator. Rachel 
honestly has no idea what has happened and therefore neither does the reader. Plus, Hawkins also uses multiple points of view, which again, keeps the reader off balance and keeps us confused as to where the truth actually lies. Okay, that's a kind of a whistle-stop tour of The Girl on the Train, but hopefully you're starting to see how important it is to study multiple examples of a given genre, and particularly a subgenre. Look for the similarities and discover why those elements need to be there. Also look for differences and discover how those differences can change the story. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. It's vital to look at as many examples as we can to figure out what's really going on in the genres that we want to tackle. So thanks so much, Valerie. Now, Kim is going to walk us through the internal components of this story, and that might also be a dark journey. (laughs) Yes, it is. So I'm looking at the worldview revelation internal genre and particularly how to set up and pay off a great twist. I don't know anyone who doesn't enjoy a good twist. That moment when what we believe to be true is revealed as false and some other, even stranger thing is actually true. The existence of a killer twist, which may or may not be about an actual killer in the story, does not automatically make the story worldview revelation. Any story can have a twist, but revelation as a genre and a plot is about a pattern of meaning. It's not about one twisty moment. Rather, it's the sum total of moments culminating in the core event where the protagonist learns the truth, that the factual information, which in most cases relates to themselves. For worldview revelation, the change comes down to the key piece of factual information the protagonist is missing. The fact that they don't know this information at the beginning, is the source of conflict. It keeps them from being able to take appropriate action. Once they obtain this information and resolve their cognitive dissonance about it, they can apply it through action, which is wisdom, and the story can conclude. This is a key difference between primal fear and the girl on the train. In the girl on the train, the revelation moment comes in time for appropriate action, as I say wisdom, to be on stage, which I personally feel makes the story more satisfying. Although, to be fair, that wasn't the only thing that was wrong with Primal Fear, the film. Hey, Kim, uh, what do you think of the scene choice to reveal that between Martha and Rachel on the train? You know, I thought that was great. For me, it shows a shift in Rachel's character from avoiding Martha, who was played by Lisa Kudrow, earlier in the film to then approaching her to make amends. I was bracing myself for a confrontation, and then Martha was so kind, and it was a very different type of progressive complication than we're used to. Also, it's intriguing to me that if Rachel had approached Martha earlier, she would have learned the truth earlier, so it's a subtle way to show how her false belief obstructed her path. So, how do we craft a satisfying worldview revelation twist? First, as with all stories, and particularly internal genres, in order to be satisfying, the pattern of meaning needs to be clear, and the best way to be clear is by being specific. To do this, let's walk through a little rhyme that I made up. It goes like this. Define, refine, translate in time across the story spine. This little rhyme helps me think through an arc that I'm trying to create and how to construct the global story with a compelling beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff. So first we're going to define the change. Now whether we're getting to a first draft or we're editing an existing draft, we can use Friedman's framework as a guide, which I hope by now everyone is really familiar with, but as always, there'll be links in the show notes. 
Once we know the kind of change, that is, the genre we need to demonstrate in our story, we can translate the abstract elements, our protagonist's character, thought, and fortune, into concrete items, their actions, dialogue, and setting. These items become tangible representations of the life values present at any given moment in the story. Remember that a protagonist will often change in more than one of the internal elements, but that one should really be the major change. And that's the one that the story is really about. The others are either causes or effects of that major meaningful change. Identifying these additional changes and getting specific for your protagonist will help you craft a character that is rich and fully developed. And this increases the audience's ability to empathize with them, which increases their ability to immerse. And an immersive experience is the universal thing that audiences want. Next, we need to identify the life values. So for Worldview Revelation, the life values at stake are ignorance and knowledge, but that's just the beginning. Creating a powerful arc, and in our case today, a powerful twist, we need to know the full range that we're working with. I found a process for expanding life values that really works for me, which I demonstrate in detail in my post writing a global internal genre story that works. But I also believe that it works for external genres as well. So for Worldview Revelation, the life values expand from that core four, right? which goes from ignorance, master's knowledge, all the way up to knowledge. Then we can go to the full spectrum, ignorance, master's knowledge, being the negation of the negation, all the way up past knowledge to wisdom. And there'll be some additions in between, which I've detailed in the show notes. An interesting and I think helpful difference to acknowledge about worldview revelation versus worldview maturation plots is that revelation is about objective truth. And maturation is about subjective truth. Here's how Sean explained it in a recent episode of the flagship Story Good podcast. There are two kinds of looks at truth. The first one is objective fact. If it's 86 degrees outside, that's an objective fact. Objects and objective facts are about matter, what is. Now, subjective truth is more story driven, and that's about what matters we attach value to objects. So that's what the difference between an objective fact and a subjective truth is. Objects are scientifically derived. It doesn't matter if I measure the temperature outside or you do, we're both going to get the same number. Whereas whether or not the weather bothers us, that's a subjective interpretation. So for me, it might be really blistering hot. I can't stand it. And you might be like, yeah, this is fine. That is the difference between objective fact and subjective truth. From here, we can narrow to the constrained range. Now, not every story will cover all of the possible life values on the spectrum. Take love story or morality, for example. Not all the subgenres of these two types will reach the lowest low or the highest high. Based on my observations, though, worldview revelation stories appear to span the full range from ignorance, master's knowledge, all the way to wisdom. Next, it's time to go into story-specific manifestations of these life values. In any story of any genre, getting specific is essential. This is the only way that the life values can be truly communicated to and experienced by the audience. For worldview revelation, this means we must define the factual information the protagonist is ignorant of. Here's some examples. In the sixth sense, Malcolm Crowe needs to see that ghosts are real and they visit Cole for help and that he himself is a ghost. 
In Get Out, Chris needs to see that his girlfriend and her family abduct and brainwash black people in order to take over their bodies, and he is their next victim. In Shutter Island, Teddy Daniels needs to see that the investigation is a farce, an experiment to help him recover from his psychosis onset by the murder of his wife. In Oedipus, Oedipus needs to see that the criminal he seeks is actually himself. He killed the king and he married his mother. In Arrival, Louise needs to see that the child she keeps seeing is her daughter and the visions are of her own future. In Sharknado, just kidding, I'm just making sure you're paying attention. Okay, in The Girl on the Train, Rachel needs to see that her ex-husband was abusive and tainted her memories and beliefs about herself, and that he is actually a master manipulator and Megan's killer. Once we know what the actual objective truth will be in our story, we can use the revelation of that truth, which is the core event and VIP obligatory scene, as our turning point fulcrum, and we can work out from there. We can use our range of life values to craft specific scenes that complete the story's arc. This means a compelling progression towards the core event and an even more fulfilling payoff to follow. There are also a couple VIP conventions that are needed. First, we need clues that are the opposite of red herrings. So they seem irrelevant, but they actually point to the truth. Hey, Kim, I just want to jump in here for a minute. You've mentioned these clues that are the opposite of red herrings a couple of times now. And because they're so important to the revelation genre, I think. It's time we gave them a name. And I have an idea. Just stick with me here for a minute. These clues are things that are hidden in plain sight, right? They're there, but the reader or the viewer doesn't recognize them as clues. They're camouflaged. So I was thinking we could call them after another sea creature who is a master of disguise. I am hereby proposing that we call them cuttlefish. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. I am really serious. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> cuttlefish hide themselves in plain sight. They're there, but unless you're looking very closely and you know where to look and what to look for, you can miss them. Motion carried? I, I oh, say I. Yeah, I mean, I like it so much. <laughs> I already got the tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I do have a tattoo of cuttlefish, so I'm not kidding. No, you do not. You do not. I absolutely do. I'll send you guys oh pictures. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That was just a joke. No, I'm serious. Oh, my God. That's amazing. That is so amazing. All right. So motion is carried. I guess I should let Sean know that we have <clears throat> coined a new phrase. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh my you are God. full of it today, yeah, Valerie. Yeah, <laughs> Oh, I cracked me up. Okay, sorry, Kim, please okay, continue. Here we go. So with that wonderful change of phrase, uh, we can note that cuttlefish that are present in the Revelation story may be different for the protagonist versus the audience due to the author's choice for narrative drive. There may be times when these true clues are dropped in for the audience to see, but the protagonist would have no way of knowing. It's important to keep this in mind when crafting the twist, because remember, a twist for the audience does not automatically make it a worldly revelation plot for the protagonist. And the best example I can think of for this is The Prestige. There is certainly a big twist revelation moment, in fact, several, but based on my gut, I'd say the internal genre is morality punitive, which now I realize tracks with what Sean was saying earlier. And so if you haven't seen that story, I highly recommend checking out 
the film. It's just fantastic. So in order for the twist to count as the core event of our revelation plot, the protagonist will need to experience a reversal of what they objectively believed about themselves or their circumstances. The next VIP convention is we must have a compelling reason for the protagonist and the audience to not doubt their current objective view of the facts. This is why the protagonist begins at ignorance masked as knowledge, because they have reason to believe they are right. Everything about their experience, observation, expertise, etc. aligns with what they objectively believe to be the truth. Now, all of this leads us to a way that you can test your story to ensure the arc is fully present. Does the protagonist begin or quickly fall to the negation of the negation, ignorance masked as knowledge? If not, look for ways you can back them up in terms of life value range and further establish their false beliefs. Next, does the protagonist experience events that introduce challenges to their objective belief? If not, you're going to want to drop in some red herrings as well as some cuttlefish. Next, does the protagonist experience the major revelatory moment, the core event, that is a reversal of everything they previously believed? Is this truth closely related to themselves in some way? If not, you might want to take a look at that because revelation stories are going to be the most powerful when the truth that they don't believe is closely related to themselves or their circumstances. Their personal stakes are much higher. Now that the protagonist knows the objective truth, do they take action to apply it as wisdom according to their moral code, that is, according to their subjective truth? This may appear either positive or negative to the audience. For example, Oedipus gouges his eyes out and Teddy Daniels from Shutter Island chooses to get a lobotomy, neither which are positive, but they are true to the character's subjective beliefs. I've cited some examples of how the girl on the train follows each of these moments of the arc, and I've also listed some additional cuttlefish for the viewer that the viewer has that Rachel doesn't have that I think are super fun that I, as always, encourage you to check out the show notes for. Thanks for this in-depth breakdown, Kim. In the past, you've talked about how the worldview revelation protagonist is often a professional, someone at the top of their game. They tend to be sophisticated and have a strong will, but simply lack the information they need to make a wise decision. So is it significant that here Rachel doesn't fit this pattern? Yeah, that's a great question. I thought about this convention and how it applies to Rachel or if it applies at all. And what I came away with is that it really comes down to the convention being a sophisticated knowledge of whatever subject of objective truth is at stake. So in most stories, this is demonstrated by the professional who is at the top of their game, right? We have an honored psychologist, a photographer with a great eye for detail, a detective, a king, a linguist with top military clearance. But here we see Rachel at rock bottom. And I think she still meets the convention because she is still an expert at her own destructive tendencies, which is what the objective truth at stake is here. She knows how much she drinks and that she often has blackouts. She knows that her behavior led to losing her job and her marriage. She knows that she went into Anna's home uninvited and picked up her baby and carried her into the backyard. And she has evidence of her violent scenario that she's capable of concocting through the video that's on her phone. All of these things seem to uphold her current objective belief. But... The other thing that your question makes me think of is that I felt that by having her as more of the layman in terms of professional expertise, Rachel feels more like the everyman protagonist that we get in a horror story as opposed to the hero that we get in an action or a thriller story. 
So that, along with the psychological aspects of the story and the subject matter of life and death of infants, it really amplified the horror aspect of this thriller for me personally. Great answer. Okay. Now let's hear from Jari about people who are looking for love in all the wrong places. (laughs) Cue music. There's a lot of love to keep track of in this story. Each one, I think, adds a different misdirection so that we don't really know what's really going to happen. And the love I'm talking about includes the love between Rachel and Tom, Tom and Anna, Scott and Megan, Megan and Dr. Attic, and Tom and Anna. So the last one between Tom and Anna, we really don't find out until later. And in fact, that's the particular one that sort of drives the story twist. So some of these lovers are having an affairs, you know, like Megan and Dr. Attic and Megan and Tom, which adds to the tension and I think confusion in Rachel's mind, especially the Megan and Dr. Attic one, because she sees them and she's like, oh, this is strange. Rachel is also obsessed with Megan because she wants to have Megan's life and can't believe that she would cheat on her husband, Scott. This obsession and Rachel's obsession with her ex-husband are just driving her to kind of drink more and more. I think she's just like in this spiral loop of doom, it seems. And the complexity of all these love triangles in the story, just it kind of makes it hard to follow at times, but it does increase the tension, I think, by powers of 10. Because, you know, when you see the therapy sessions between Megan and Dr. Attic, it also makes for this increasing tension and it also drives uh, Rachel's obsession even more. But the one love story that I kind of want to focus on is the obsession love subplot between Megan and Tom. And you don't see all the conventions and obligatory scenes of this love subplot between them, but it seems to manifest themselves through Rachel's obsession with Megan, which I find really interesting that these conventions are kind of gone through Rachel. I think the reason this love obsession subplot works for a thriller is that obsession love story is one of the lovers that have such a shallow but intoxicating passion for each other that the life death value comes into play. I mean, clearly comes into play here. And obsession love stories are almost always cautionary tales. They don't progress beyond the desire value and usually end in tragedy. And that's why they are like the perfect subplot for a thriller. Recall that global values for love go from hate masquerading as love, indifference, hate, repulsion, ignorance, attraction, desire, commitment, and then intimacy. And those last two are the endpoints for courtship, which is commitment, and then marriage, which is intimacy. So each of the love stories do vary along these global value continuum. So in that sense, they all work. And the hidden love story between Megan and Tom also works and is hinted at at various times, like the first scene in the woods, but it's never really on screen. I still think it works, but it maybe it's developed more in the novel. Since Megan and Tom love story is the subplot. I don't think it's required to have all the conventions and obligatory scenes on the screen, but I think if they were more on the screen, it would help it out a little bit more. Let's just review those conventions for a love story. They are lovers need to meet. There needs to be a first kiss or intimate connection. There must be a confession of love. The lovers must break up. There must be proof of love. And then the lovers must reunite. And for our obsessive love story between Megan and Tom, we don't see any of these really on screen. It's simply implied or rather it's we probably make it up on our heads. And I think we see that as we start to get to know Tom a little bit more. But clearly the lovers break up scene 
which is when Tom kills Megan, that's the ultimate breakup. And really, that's the tragic ending for this obsessive love story. Still, I'm really not that fully satisfied with the Megan-Tom love affair. But what really drives it up for me is when Martha and Rachel meet for the second time on the train. And Rachel actually has the courage to come out and apologize to Martha. And this is when Rachel learns the truth about her husband. Martha. Martha. Rachel? I haven't seen you in a million years. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to call you, um, but Tom said I should just leave it alone. Oh. Um, I'm so sorry. For what? For the barbecue. And I just need you to know that I, I don't remember anything. And um, I just completely blacked out. Everyone had a little too much to drink, so. I know, but the, the eggs and that I, I screamed at you that I was that abusive. I just feel, I just feel so ashamed about it. Um, I don't. Tom, Tom said that, um, that I smashed your plate. I don't. Tom was fired, fired because of how I behaved. You felt sick and you took a nap in our guest bedroom. You lie down? Come with me. Excuse us. Rachel, are you feeling better? You guys can stay tonight if you want. No, no, that's fine. Thanks. I think I'd remember if you caused a scene. I'm so sorry. Get up. And then Tom took you home. Sorry, Tom. Stop fucking saying that. I know you're sorry. Sorry. It's a fucking problem. You can't even focus on me. You can't even fucking stand up. What is wrong with you? Can you stand? Fucking <sighs> disgusting. N no. No. Yeah, Tom got fired because he couldn't keep his dick in his pants. You did nothing wrong. Nothing. This scene for me is the turning point because we now see the real truth revealed and Rachel learns more about her obsessive love tendencies that are getting her in trouble, along with being you know, a blackout drunk. And I think you kind of need to be the drunk in this or this isn't really going to work as well. I mean, this also is the big secrets that lovers keep from each other and that Tom has been gaslighting Rachel their whole relationship and she finally realizes it now. And for the love story conventions of secrets, it's actually a good way to reveal, I mean, Tom's just a psychopath. So for writers, the girl on the train, I think does a decent job at developing the obsessive love story subplot. I don't think the writer could have revealed any more about the Megan Tom love subplot or the twist may have been revealed too early and that probably might have like ruined it for everyone in the big kind of climax. And overall, I liked the girl on the train, not as much as Gone Girl or anything like that, but I did feel something for the characters and I liked the way the writer put it all the twists and turns. So it's a pretty good way to, to do a thriller and have these cuttlefish, um, which is like awesome new term. Okay, great. Now Anne is going to take us through the scene types within the middle build, where I understand you've uncovered some startling revelations. <laughs> well, I hope so. I had a very tough time getting through this movie because I really, really didn't like it. And there's a whole rant about how the empathy didn't work for me, which will be in the show notes. It's a little long to go into here. But one thing I did want to say is that 
in terms of cautionary or prescriptive stories, this one felt not cautionary, just actively harmful. It seemed to be a story without any cautionary value for women. And I know that's not what was intended, but that's what I took from the overall sense of the movie. I think, Anne, the cautionary tale is, I mean, maybe don't drink to deal with your sorrows. Rachel is a complete mess, but she's not as messed up as like the Nicolas Cage character in Leaving Las Vegas. I mean, I felt for her in that regard. And it did make it more interesting to me I mean, if she was so sober, I just don't think this story would work at all. Well, no, it wouldn't, because her drunkenness helps explain her memory loss, which is key to the story. Her not remembering what really happened is like the whole psychological thriller. But don't drink to deal with your sorrows as a cautionary message. How about don't abuse and murder women? How about don't gaslight your grieving wife? How about get help for your sex addiction and your anger issues? I mean, there are plenty of life lessons here that had little to do with the protagonist and her journey, which I see as being from grief to obsession to murder. I just didn't find a lot of redeeming value here. Sorry. Um, I mean, yeah, tr- true enough. I mean, the scene where she sees Tom's true self um, – has all of that, what you mentioned. And at that point in the story, I started to really wonder about Tom. And I actually felt more empathy for Rachel, knowing that she was abused. But yeah, I mean, maybe, I don't know if what you could have done differently or the writer could have done differently to kind of put that more forward. Well, the writer probably couldn't have done anything differently uh, to get me involved in this story. And I don't want to make a case for personal taste means the movie was bad. That's not what I want to say here. I am not an expert on empathy. Valerie is. So I wanted to move on to, after I asked myself why this movie didn't appeal to me and how I was going to deal with it at all, I looked around and I found the interesting thing in it for me. And that interesting thing is scene types. Now, we've been talking about these on the Masterwork Experiment. Valerie and I have written an article about it, but I want to bring it up here. Put as simply as possible, scene types can be categorized by how many characters are in the scene, doing what, in what kind of surroundings. You can break the categories down further by what the characters are intending, facing, or avoiding. That is, how and why they find themselves in a given situation. Once you begin to see scene types, you realize that there's no such thing as a wholly original one. Now, one of Valerie's great discoveries is that if you want to slow down your narrative drive and create reader boredom, by all means, all you have to do is repeat the same scene type two or three times in a row. And that's what happens in The Girl on the Train's middle build. As I run down this list of scenes or possibly beats in the middle build, just let associations with other films and books wash over you. I suspect you will recognize all of these. Now, bear in mind, these are scene types, not scenes. I'm not going to talk about who's in them or what they're doing, okay? So, number one, a character wakes up from blackout or unconsciousness surrounded by or covered in evidence of a crime. Number two, frantic disposal of the evidence. Number three, confession to a stranger, in this case, a 12-step meeting, which is its own subtype and a real cliche. Number four, flashbacks triggered by the coincidental appearance of someone or something familiar. Number five, police, we need to ask you a few questions, which becomes number six, a two-person confrontation in a room in which a truth comes out. In this case, it's the variant we'll call detective and suspect. Number seven, a two-person confrontation in a room in which a truth comes out. 
roommates variation. Number eight, flashbacks triggered by the coincidental appearance of someone or something familiar. If that rings a bell, it was also number four. Number nine, a two-person confrontation in the street in which a truth comes out, detective and suspect variation. Number 10, confession to a stranger. This is the patient and psychotherapist variant, which is its own cliche subtype. And it turns into 11, a two-person confrontation in a room in which a truth comes out, therapist and patient variant. During this scene, we get flashbacks with these beat types, exposition delivered via epistolary device with voiceover, news report. B, stranger at the door, which becomes a two-person conversation over coffee, escalating to alcohol, going to C, exposition delivered again by epistolary or epistolary, depending on whether you're American or British, device with voiceover. And this is a text message variation. And D, there's a sex scene. And after that, the session with the psychiatrist ends. Number 12, exposition delivered via epistolary device, news report variant. Number 13, playing pool in a dive bar. This one served no story purpose I could tell except to form a visual backdrop for more expository voiceover. Number 14, two-person confrontation in a room. There is a cuttlefish given in this one. Number 15, flashbacks triggered by the coincidental appearance of someone or something familiar. That's the third time we've seen that one. Number 16, a two-person confrontation in a room in which a truth comes out and another cuttlefish. 17, confession to a stranger. Again, patient and psychotherapist. Again. Number 18, witness comes down to the station to volunteer evidence to the police. Number 19, trying to break into the private files of a spouse or other close person. Number 20, stranger at the door, mirroring the previous stranger at the door scene. Number 21, stay here tonight because you can't go home. This is typically found in love stories. It had no love in it in this movie. 22, Confession to a stranger, patient and psychotherapist variation. Is this feeling familiar? This one has the additional bothering the doctor at home in the middle of the night twist for added inappropriateness. Number 23, exposition delivered via epistolary device in a news report. 24, a witness or suspect runs the gauntlet of a host of reporters. 25, a two-person confrontation in a backyard. 26, a sex scene. It has the unwanted or unromantic variant. 27, a two-person confrontation in a room. 28, how did you get in here? Or a stranger in my living room becoming, you guessed it, a two-person confrontation in a room during which a truth comes out. 29, a witness comes down to the station to volunteer evidence to the police. That's the second instance of this type. It becomes, say it with me, number 30, a two-person confrontation in a room during which a truth comes out. This had a restroom variant, which is a special subtype. 31, sad woman sits on a toilet reading the unwanted results of a pregnancy test. 32, confession to a stranger, patient and psychotherapist variant. I think that's the fourth time we've seen that one. 33, oh, now here comes something new, drinking alone, which immediately becomes, oh my God, another confrontation between two people in a room where a truth comes out. Okay, I'm going to stop torturing everyone now. I think we get the picture. 65% of this film's middle build consists of repetitive two-person confrontations or confessions in which a truth is revealed or else epistolary or voiceover exposition. Now, a certain number of patient and therapist confession scenes make sense in a psychological thriller because it's about a person's sanity. 
A 12-step meeting scene makes sense in a story about an addict, although I got to say Chuck Palahniuk set the bar for innovating that scene type 23 years ago in Fight Club, and if you can't top that, why bother with it? Naturally, every story is likely to have two-person conversations in a room. That's okay. And a worldview revelation story does depend on progressive revelations leading up to the big one. So the problem is not that the 37 scenes I just categorized are inherently wrong, or even that we can see cliches in some of them. You can get away with that. The problem is the uncreative, repetitive re-re-reuse of the same scene types over and over and over. How is two people in a room confronting each other time after time, escalating the stakes or the tension? It isn't. All they can do is swear more or throw things harder. Is there another way for the truth to come out? Another form of confrontation besides talking? If a familiar object must trigger a flashback in one scene, could there be a different way to trigger the next one in the next scene? So, What's my takeaway for writers? We are very far from having all the answers about scene types, but here's a place to start. Add a scene type column to your spreadsheet and comb through your draft for repeats. If you have several two-person conversations, move some of them to a car or outdoors or during a walk or a run. Have two people talking in a box with a fox here or there, anywhere, in the dark, at the park, in the rain, on a train. Change it up and not arbitrarily. Restaurants signify something different from coffee shops, which don't mean the same thing as bars. A fancy eatery is different from the local diner, and a dive bar is different from a swanky cocktail lounge. Your scene type choices should reveal character, generate conflict, and pit characters against each other in organic, revelatory ways for story-related reasons, and they shouldn't just keep repeating. Even if your story has a worldview revelation plot where the gradual revelation of the whole truth is the middle build, find other ways to reveal those truths besides just two people in a room confronting each other. And that's it. That's all I've got. I'm grateful to this film only (laughs) because it has helped us all land on cuttlefish as a term for the anti-red herring and because it has given us fodder for more scene type work, which I'm looking forward to doing. So back to you, Leslie. Well, that's a tough act to follow. Uh, So I think I'm going to go right to the listener question. What, no Dr. Seuss? No. (laughs) To wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners. This week's question comes to us from Rich Mansfield. And here's that question. I'm stuck. The genre I really want to write in is the opposite of dystopian. Is no one interested anymore in utopian novels like Looking Backward and Walden 2? To quote you in, which genre am I writing in? Our choice of genre dictates the value at stake, the core emotion and core event, the protagonists' objects of desire, the obligatory scenes and conventions, and even the theme. When I started, I thought it was going to be a thriller about violence in South Chicago, but what I really want to do is deal with the ways to end that violence. And just a side note here, hear, hear, Rich. That led to too many ideas for a thriller, seems to me. Although the dialogue my characters have is, I think, engaging and full of enough conflict to maintain interest. Any ideas as to why there's a gap in genres? Any suggestions for obligatory scenes and conventions, etc.? Okay, Kim, take it away. 
Hi, Rich. Thanks so much for your question. So like fantasy or science fiction, utopia and dystopia are part of the reality leaf, which informs the governing rules of the story world rather than the content leaf, which, as you mentioned, informs the life values, core event, etc. So if we look closer at the reality leaf, we see that it breaks down into four major categories. Factualism, which is based on factual events in the past. Realism, which is governed by rules of our known universe, so it's possible that it could happen. Absurdism, which means there are no rules, or that the rules can change, which still means there are no rules. Or fantasy, which means that it's governed by rules, but not those of the known universe. This requires credible world building to inform the reader about the rules and should be consistent with established governing rules. Sean breaks this fantasy down into three additional subtypes, human, magic, and science fiction. Now, under reality, fantasy, science fiction, Sean has several subsets. Alternative history, cyberpunk, hard science, military, post-apocalyptic slash dystopian, romantic, soft science, and space opera. So it seems to me that utopia would fit as another subset of this kind of speculative fiction, you know, similar to alternative history. Utopia seems to embody a fantasy reality of the way that a society functions. Having a utopian reality could lend itself to any number of content genres. The two novels that you cited are referred to as novels of ideas, which feel more like big idea fiction, a phrase that Leslie has coined recently, and would likely be a global internal worldview genre paired with an external society genre, where the entire novel serves as this visionary speech solution to the crime of injustice and inequality. Now, I haven't read those novels, but I looked through the synopsis, synopsi, whatever, and the thing I wanted to point out here is beware that a novel like this could suffer from a lack of conflict and plot, which would keep it from feeling like a story. My recommendation at this point is to find five examples of stories like this and study them closely. Complete the editor's six core questions and then identify the 15 core scenes to help you identify the life values at stake. From here, you can dig deeper into the common elements that exist across the stories. That's the conventions and the obligatory scenes. And from here, you can extrapolate constraints for yourself to outline and draft a story similar to what Anne and Sean are doing in the masterwork experiment with Brokeback Mountain. We all agree that constraints are the key to enhanced creativity. So thanks for your question, Rich, and good luck. Thank you, Kim. Okay, if you have a question about what makes a psychological thriller tick, or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT. Or better still, go to StoryGrid.com resources, click on Editor Roundtable Podcast, and leave us a voice message. That wraps it up for this week. Great discussion. Thank you, Anne, Jari, Kim, and Valerie for your excellent editorial insights into The Girl on the Train. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to build real thrills into your psychological thriller. You can find links and additional material in the show notes at storygrid.com, and we always recommend you check that out because there's a lot more than in the episode. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. Join us next time as Jari delves into Crazy Rich Asians as an example of a modern love story. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us?
Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.